Welcome to Music and Medicine. My name is Jacques Osmo, and music is my life. In this show, we will discuss the newest research on the intersection of music and medicine from scientific, musical, and historical perspectives. And most importantly, I hope that what you hear in this program will help you identify how to use music to make your own life healthier and happier. Today, we have a great pleasure of having with us Stephen Johnson, a British music writer, BBC broadcaster, and composer. Stephen, welcome. Hello. You are the author of several highly acclaimed books on music. One of them, titled How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, is the winner of the prestigious 2021 Rubri Book Award. In this work, you explore the power of music by the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich during Stalin's reign of terror and write of the extraordinary healing effects of music on people living with mental illness. First, congratulations. Thank you. And can you please tell us more about this work? It grew out of a documentary I did for the radio in 2006, which, as it turned out, was very well-timed because we were just in time to meet some of the people who had known Shostakovich well, lived with him through Stalinism, and in some cases lived through the siege of Leningrad. And in one case, we met a musician who'd played in the performance of Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony in the middle of the siege. And he did about five interviews that year and then probably died. It's extraordinary how people often, when they have a story to tell, will keep going until they have the chance to tell it. And then the relief is so intense that somehow they pass away. It's as though, he, I mean, you could tell he and his wife really needed to tell that story. It was one they wanted to heard. The question that really was forming in my mind, it was out of a discussion I had with the producer at the radio. And there's an awful lot of talk about happiness, or there seemed to be then, of what, you know, the pursuit of happiness and how you can make yourself happier. And um, as a depressive, I've always had my suspicions about that. <laughs> but actually, I think that happiness is something that's better not pursued. It's a bit like a cat. If it's going to come to you, it will. But if you try and pursue it, it'll be off in a flash. But this producer and I were both saying, why is it that we both are so drawn to what often seems dark music, sad music, painful music. Even as a little boy, uh, when I was about eight or nine and really started listening to classical music seriously, I had a bit of an obsession with symphonies in minor keys. So as you can imagine, I was going to the Russians fairly early on, Tchaikovsky, mm -hmm. uh, he was my man. <laughs> and then Shostakovich and Prokofiev soon afterwards. At the time, of course, people said to me that this was unhealthy, it was self-indulgent, I should be listening to things that, you know, that kind of you should get out more sort of attitude. I often think that the people who say you should get out more are often the kind of people who should stay in more. <laughs> I love a saying of the philosopher Nietzsche, which I know off by heart, which is, we dare not be alone and silent, because if we are alone and silent, who knows what might be whispered into our ears. And as I've got older and I've struggled with my bipolar depression, I've realised that there are times when you have to, to sit alone and silent and wait to see what it is that's whispered into your ear. And these dark pieces of music, and also certain works of literature too for me, but particularly music, have been vital, I think, in establishing a connection with the voice in your head that has things to say that you really ought to listen to, but you spend so much of your life running from. And why do you think they're so dark? Because existence is dark. Um, it, life can be wonderful. Life is, is truly, being just being conscious and alive and awake and experiencing is, is extraordinary. And I have had moments of great joy in my life, but... As a, I remember a long time ago, very one of those Russian conversations you have about two o'clock in the morning after a lot of mm -hmm. work with a new <laughs> friend I'd made out there, and I, we were talking about happiness, and he, it was I think he was actually during that trip in 2006, and he said, "Well, I don't know about happiness, but I do know about joy, and joy is a tree with its roots deep in sorrow." And I thought, "Yes, it is. 
That's the difference between you know, what is happiness. What, I think some people have this idea there's a kind of steady state, mild euphoria you can get to where you're kind of walking around with a smile on your face all the time. It doesn't exist. You know, every day is full of all sorts of tensions. Joy, it seems to me, is a state of affirmation, which actually nevertheless knows that life can also be terrible. You know, it acknowledges the fact, and, and it seems to me that this is what an integrated mind is, and it's not mm -hmm. something I think I've achieved, but I've maybe glimpsed in moments and I strive towards. And at the same time, there is something that, I can't remember who used this phrase, talked about, but I think it might have been the poet W.B. Yeats, when he talked about tragic joy. And there is when one is really caught up in a great tragic play or a great tragic novel or a great tragic symphony or string quartet or whatever else, opera, tragic opera, mm -hmm. tragic song cycle, even a song cycle as desolate as Schubert's Winterreiser, which seems to, do, to start in a bad place and end up utterly hopeless. There's a, why is it that listening to this given form by a, a really, I would say, great composer, great creative artist, can make this into an experience that is simultaneously painful and joyous, where, you know, there's a thrill in being able to experience this. I began to ask myself, can this also apply to life? And, well, no, there are times, of course, when just suffering gets too much. You know, there are things I wouldn't possibly say this to somebody who's going through the terrible bereavement or has a loved one with dementia or in the face of some terrible trauma. But there are times when when you're not actually in the, the maelstrom itself afterwards, when you have to somehow or other come to terms with it and make sense of it, that, that tragic art can really help you ar arrive at a peace, stability, and even joy, which nevertheless doesn't, isn't dependent on you having to forget that you had this terrible experience. So in your mind, in your mind, what is joy? And is the joy more intense, the darker the darkness is. You'll probably find here that I'm, I'm, my, my wife just raises her eyebrows at this. I've become a kind of quotation machine. I have a very strange memory. <laughs> but it's, it's that incredible line from Goethe's Faust. When you can say to the moment, stay, you are beautiful. You are altogether lovely. When you can say, in this moment, I am glad to be alive, that is joy.
We've just heard the third movement of Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 10 in E minor, the Leningrad Symphony. The piece was performed by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Vasily Petrenko. In 1942, starving musicians in the besieged city of Leningrad premiered Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, composed especially for the city, which was under constant Nazi attack. Today we are in conversation with Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the process of creating this work, the book? It's really interesting. Once I set out on either writing a book or a comp- composition... Mm-hmm. I used to, when I was younger, when I started composing again, and when I was writing my first books, I would draw very, very detailed plans. And as I got on with it and got better at it, the plans would get less and less detailed and more and more vague. And, look, and sometimes the pieces of paper would have drawings on rather than words mm-hmm. or music. Until with the book... The last, the Shostakovich book, I, I sat down knowing that the background was this documentary, but that it wasn't going to be like the documentary. And the experience was actually rather like, if you can imagine, you're walking on a carpet and the carpet is unrolling under your feet about a foot in front of you as you go along. Mm-hmm. And you can't see any further than that. And I've learned to trust that when, when that starts happening it'll be all right. And I know some people have remarked on the form of the book. I I deliberately structured it in very short sections, partly because that seemed from the start to make sense. But also I was thinking of busy modern readers who don't have time often to sit down with a long chapter and thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, 
you can digest 2,000 words and then come back to it later, and it's not a very long book. But structure is something interesting. I'm very proud of this. A lot of people say they really like the way I structure things, both musically and literally. It's the thing I think about least, interestingly. It just sort of decides itself. Once I've got the feel of it, then, mm -hmm. then it, 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 it unrolls. But I started, I remember about 30 years ago, reading Kafka's Metamorphosis for the first time in German and being really struck by a phrase that I hadn't been struck by when I read it in English. Because it seems like a very, and most people would say it's an incredibly bleak story, but Kafka, he's so paradoxical. Mm -hmm. you know. And there are glimmers of something else, in the, even, even in that story. At one point near the end, Gregor hears a violin playing, and he's terribly moved by this, and he says how, to ask himself, how could he be an insect if music could make him feel like this? And I realized that that was the question that if I could have formulated it, I would have often asked myself as a teenager, even as a young man. And when music transformed my own painful experiences. And I realized that was the book, really. This was it. And it begins and ends with the question. Mm -hmm. And I've been very fortunate to be part of, uh, not just with, with, partly through the documentary, making the documentary, talking specialist, to be invited to join a group called the Musical Brains Trust, where musicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, neurologists, all philosophers got together to discuss this, questions like this, and particularly how music can help us make sense of, help us deal with mental illness, help us deal uh, with all sorts of problems, trauma and depression. And through that, uh, I learned an incredible amount mm -hmm. and received a lot of encouragement from people. And it was particularly a philosopher called Roger Scruton had invited me to join his discussion. Oh, yes. People of all sorts of very different views would come together. I and mean, it was always the, the enlightenment idea that you've got to respect each other and you never know, you might learn from someone you profoundly mm -hmm. disagree with, as I did from Roger. And he said, oh, you've got to turn this into a book. And I, at that time I met, I was introduced to a publisher who hadn't written any, done any music books up till this stage, a small publisher called Notting Hill Editions. And she took a punt on this and, and it was their first book to win award, an award too. Oh, wonderful. They're only, they're, only, they're only about five years old, this publisher. So, they, so, so it was a punt, it was a good punt on their part as well. But, but I, I just felt I had to bring together all these different things. And actually, the, I realized as I went along that writing it in small sections allowed me to take different perspectives as I went along without mm. the necessity of trying to find a coherent thread that joined them together and invite the reader to draw their own conclusions, uh, which is actually not a lazy way of opting out of. But actually, instead of me waving a finger and preaching and saying, this is what I, well, I do say this is what I think. But it's a, it's a dialectical message. It's also a little bit like, like the documentary in that you're hearing different voices as mm -hmm. you go along. And I love that kind of way of doing things, of, you know, the kind of book which brings together different, um, different voices and different opinions and different slants dialectically. And so I felt, you know, it was quite important. So throughout the book, various people speak and I quote their words often at quite length, at some length. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I'm the person wandering from apartment to apartment or whatever yes. else, sort of trying to, to pondering on it as I go along. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about the research process? And you obviously found a way of relating to Shostakovich and his oh, music. Yes. I, well, I first heard the Fifth Symphony when I was about 13. And interestingly, it was a bit modern for me mm -hmm. because there's quite a high level of discord in it. Certainly for a young man up till then, sort of is, is Wagner, Tchaikovsky, Bruckner and Brahms and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I felt immediately, oh, no, there's something in this that I've got to get to know. And I got the score out and, and, ready. and before long, I was absolutely hooked. I made a piano arrangement of the first movement. And I can remember one night lying in bed with the slow movement, the beginning of the slow movement going through my head and thinking, feeling, feeling almost like being in love. Mm -hmm music and i think why i i kept just i couldn't sleep because it just kept replaying certain phrases in my head i'm thinking this music is it painfully sad i think i would have said the word exquisitely sad and then there there's the paradox why am i also loving it and one of the reasons i think it was explained to me by um a neurologist friend is that music can help us produce a hormone called oxytocin 
which is what they call the love hormone, I think, in vernacular. But it's very important in the bonding processes of mothers and young children. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was a very disturbed and disturbing woman. She was a very brilliant woman, a very, you know, a very unlucky woman in the way that her life had turned out. And I don't think she should have had children as young as she did. I really don't. <laughs> but she was could be very stimulating. She could also be terrifying. How old was she when she had children, if you don't mind me asking? She was about 23. Okay. When I was when I came along, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. She'd married more or less to get away from her father, I think. Or she got married in black, which was a pretty unusual thing to do in those days. Okay. <laughs> um, and she she could be very stimulating, but she was not a motherly mother. And I lacked somebody to give me that kind of maternal reassurance. And I think that to some extent, even though it seems like an incredible thing to say, I met specialists who said, no, no, this is not impossible. I received some of that through music. Well, what a mother can do, you know, my, my wife is a psychotherapist and deals with people with trauma and particularly, and she knows a fair bit about this, but and she's taken me through this too. But what a mother can do when a child, you've seen children, haven't you? I mean, you, you? Children in supermarkets maybe when they, when they haven't, <laughs> been able to get the chocolate they want and they have these paroxysms of grief or whatever else yeah i have two little ones yes i'm sure you know (laughs) and um the the mother can reflect for the child this sense of being overpowered by this oceanic emotion can be very frightening and what the mother can do is reflect it back to them and say it's all right not that the feeling is all right but that it's all right to feel that feeling yeah. You know what I mean? The frustration, um, it's fine. It's yes. fine. It, it, you know, you're not going to explode. You're not going to keel over the edge. I'm not going to wallop you, you know, or anything like that. And uh, and reassure you. And music can do that. You see, music can reflect back the emotions you feel. I mean, I'm very fond of a saying by the philosopher Ernst Bloch that when we listen to music, what we really hear is ourselves. Now, that there is remarkable convergence around Shostakovich's music about the kind of emotions that people feel there. So clearly it's not just a blank slate on which people read their own feelings. There's a lot of stimulus coming at you. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, music can't make you feel feelings that you haven't at least got the potential to feel yourself. And yeah. um, it can't put feelings in you. You know, Music can't make us feel things we don't at least have the potential to feel ourselves. So... What it is, and I remember years later uh, being in the car with Kate, my wife, and mm-hmm. on the radio was Tchaikovsky's Pathétique Symphony, which I absolutely adored as a child. And I remember getting the piano arrangement and trying my best to play it, and what, feeling I could never get enough of this music. And I remember my mother was quite disturbed by the fact that I liked it so much. She was even tried to sort of hide the record at one point. But years later, we were in the car, and we heard it, and there was at that terrifying desperate climax in the first movement and i suddenly said were those my feelings as i listened to this music and kate said yes and the next minute i was absolutely in a sobbing wreck what i'd done i think in the music i loved at that period was it created a safe space in which to experience and release emotions which normally I couldn't. I, I, I did a lot of dissociation, mm-hmm. I realise now, looking back, and this is something I've had to unpick at great length over a very long period of time, uh, that these were the feelings that I had dissociated from. But in music, I could experience them. It's just that as I listened to them, I didn't think they were my own. I now know listening to them. In fact, it's so powerful, it's almost t- too painful listening to them. I... I listened to the Shostakovich and I almost couldn't bear it because of the thought, dear God, there's 13-year-old me, this is what I was feeling. But it creates this safe space. And one of the reasons it's able to do this is because it is so structured. Music is structured. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, anything from a pop song right through to a symphony is a highly structured experience. And it has a beginning and a middle and an end tension is built up and it's released mm-hmm. and so you know and also if you're listening to it you can either walk out of the room or you can switch off the recording or whatever else and you know so you're in control and in a way you are taking back control of dangerous emotions and this is very much like what 
my wife does as a psychotherapist with people with trauma. She creates a safe space, an absolutely regular place where they become able to say, to explore these dangerous feelings. And I think one of the things that Kate said to me, which was, was great, is that, that, that when you've had a terrible, terrible traumatic experience, what you have to do, what you need to do, is to be able to construct an autobiographical memory whereby you can say to yourself, that happened to me. Um, mm. And uh, it happened in this order. You tell a story. This is what storytelling is so important. And the feeling then becomes maybe it doesn't, the pain doesn't go away, but it ceases to be overwhelming. You're not floundering in the middle of the ocean, a stormy ocean. You may be still be in the stormy ocean, but you're on a good boat. Mm-hmm. And what happens with terrible trauma is that sometimes you're not able to do that. You're not able to tell that story for some reason. It's too painful. And the emotion remains rogue in the brain and and destabilizes and creates havoc in your everyday life. Music is one of the ways that you can tell a story of those emotions, experience them and say, that happened to me. Because that moment in the car, when I had that experience with Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, and I was able to say, yes, that happened to me, was a moment when those feelings started to become safe. Mm -hmm. They hadn't gone away, but they were no longer damaging in the way that they had been.
We've just heard the second movement of Symphony No. 6 in B minor, Pathetique, by Piotr Ilyichaikovsky, performed by Musica Eterna, conducted by Theodor Kurensis. Today we are in conversation with Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster, and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. Well, that is probably one of the reasons why, let's say, in war zones, music tend to play such big role, exactly because of the fact that it creates a safe space for people yeah. to bond over, to people to come together and reconcile. And That's the other thing, of course. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of listening on my own uh, and playing on my own as a teenager. But when I went to concerts and when I started making music with other people, and particularly later in life, I began to experience, I noticed that Shostakovich particularly works particularly well in concert with, with mm-hmm. audiences, with people. You know, he and it was something that this extraordinary man, Viktor Kozlov, the clarinetist I met, who played in the Leningrad Siege performance of the Leningrad Symphony, said, this music didn't try to take us away from what it, we experienced. It actually took us into it, but transformed it. And at the same time, he said, you know, that this was something I was already beginning to sense, that that it wasn't just about an artist on the stage telling you about his feelings, you know, how I suffer. But he was saying, this is what we all feel. And I met an amazing man, a critic who was 93, who'd been at the first performance of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony in the middle of the Stalinist terror in 1937. And he said, you know, we were, you're living in hell. And all around you, art is grinning inanely and saying, this is heaven. This is the communist paradise. (laughs) And suddenly you hear music that says, no, it's bad. And you want to weep for joy because someone has heard you and you look around the room and see other people and they're vibrating with this music too and you can see tears on people's faces and you've been brought together. And this moment of being heard and being heard and sharing and when at the end of the Leningrad Symphony all the extra brass stand up and play the opening theme which is associated with with the city itself like a Mm -hmm. choir, it is like a huge number of people standing up and just saying, we will survive. And it's an incredibly thrilling moment. And it doesn't, you don't have to have lived through anything like as terrible as the Siege of Leningrad to, to feel overpowered by that when you hear it in a concert. Oh, absolutely. So let me ask you, you wrote about other composers. You wrote about Mahler, about Wagner, about Bruckner. Do you relate? And did you relate to each one of them as much as you seem to relate to Shostakovich and his music? I think the answer to that is yes, with different intensities at different times. Mm -hmm. Bruckner can express some very, very disturbed and disturbing emotions too. Uh, But there is something about him. It's, you know, when people call his music cathedrals in sound, I think they're tapping into something quite deep, which is that there was a sense of him that, you know, you, you look at his sketches and you can see how carefully he proportioned those colossal symphonies or his tiny motets or whatever else mm-hmm. he wasn't just trying to create this is him creating his safe space and it's very much so his associated with his obviously very profound religious experience which was the major sustaining force in his life you know whatever mm-hmm. things of religion Bruckner's religion was fundamentally a good thing I think and there's a curious feeling. I, mean, I remember after my first really terrible episode at university when I had to come home and do my final year again, and I'd been in hospital for a while. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't read for a while at all. But I did listen to music. And one of the things I listened to was Bruckner's Eighth Symphony, which goes to some very dark places. But there is this constant feeling underneath it somehow that at a deeper level, there is somebody very calm who knows where he's going. And when you get to the end of that symphony and all four themes from all four movements are locked together in this blaze of C major, there's a feeling of, oh, this is what it is. It's as though there's a kind of silent person behind you all the time saying, no, turn left here, you'll be all right. And, you know, mm-hmm. Keep going, this is okay. And then finally, at the end of that symphony, you see this being and you know, you know what it is.
And this was Symphony No. 8 in C minor, First Movement, Allegro Moderato, by Anton Bruckner, performed by Symphony Orchestra des Bayerischen Rundfunks, conducted by Maris Janssons. Today we are in conversation with Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster, and composer. His recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, won the prestigious 2021 Rubery Book Award. And it's incredible. I, at the same time, I think, you know, Mahler, no, you see, Mahler takes you to a different kind of universe where things are not so certain, where that incredible, I'm thinking there's an incredible story I love by Borges, the Argentinian writer, about called The Immortal, about a man who finds the city of the immortal gods and mm-hmm. it's deserted and it's terrifying and it's, it's like a sort of Escher drawing, only even madder. And he wanders around it and and is overwhelmed and says, what is he? He says, this place was truly built by the gods. And then he says, the gods who built it are all dead. And then at the end he says, and the gods who built it were mad. Mm-hmm. And there is an element in Mahler where you feel there are times when he looks into that abyss of meaninglessness and crazinessness that this world is, will never make sense of it and whatever else, you know. So he's a very different kind of perspective from Bruckner. But I think it's been important for me to go with him because always he's strong enough to survive that vision, you know, and he does so. It's through singing, through song, the way the music sings. Singing is like Orpheus in hell. Mm -hmm. Singing is the way he keeps going. And so that's Mahler too. As for Wagner, uh, well, understanding in Tristan how desire in that opera is connected with a longing for something more than sexual gratification, something much, much more than that. In Wagner's case, his mother seems to have been a pretty um, unmothering mother too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a colossal longing for an impossible love in that opera, which to which he gives form so amazingly that I think that helped too. I also felt with Parsifal that complicated as that opera is, that the central message about compassion and about how compassion is liberating, compassion for others and compassion for yourself, which is quite different from self-pity, that those are all incredibly important messages. Also, the other person I wrote about, I think the very first book I wrote was about Beethoven. It was a much more introductory guide to Beethoven, but I think Beethoven Mm -hmm. is almost the, the ground base of all these things that I've written about because... He has that incredible sense, particularly in his late works, but even earlier than that, of being able to go down into his darkest place and somehow come out the other side. And you think of that passage in, when, in that document he wrote, 
in that terrible depressive summer of 1802, the, the, the Heiligenstadt Testament, as it's called. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows quite what it was for or whether it's a will or a suicide note or something just for himself or what. But he says, you know, I often thought of killing myself, but it was my art that kept me going. That can sound so romantic and overblown and whatever, but I think he really meant it. And I think there are times in Beethoven's music where you hear what he found in creation, you know, which is possibly apart from love, the thing that brings us nearest to God, whether or not God exists. (laughs) You know what I mean? I Um, think he absolutely meant it. I mean, there is when you dedicate yourself to your art to that degree, you mean it. It's it's not just you know branding, matter of branding, and you know being overblown. And and like Shostakovich, this is something that comes over very strongly with Shostakovich with Beethoven too. He had an enormous sense of responsibility. He was doing Mm. this for other people, you know. Of course, there was a selfish element in it. Of course, there's a there's a there's an egoistic element in creativity, but. But at the same time, it's a gift. And that's one of the reasons why when you look on YouTube, one of the 48, I think, recordings of the Ninth Symphony has over 100 million views. Why this music still keeps talking to people, yes. you know, because because it is incredibly generous music, because it is offering that positiveness that he found to us and expressing it supremely well.
just heard Ode to Joy from Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, conducted by Sir George Schulte. This ends part one of our conversation with our guest today, Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is a British author, BBC music broadcaster, and composer. In his recent book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, he explores the power of Shostakovich's music during Stalin's reign of terror and writes of the extraordinary healing effects of music on people living with mental illness. Until next time, stay healthy and happy and keep listening.